You are listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister, followed up by question and answer exchanges with groups of his students. There's an African proverb that says two people in a burning house should not argue. And I think this is such an incredibly uh, potent way of looking at our life since ultimately we're in a burning house. In the ultimate sense, we, like every other thing, has uh, a limited amount of time here. So we're bound by time. We're also, as uh, everything else, we are interdependent on all other things. Ultimately, everything is part of the universe. There's nothing that's not part of the universe. As a result, the interplay of everything in the universe is something that we are part of. We play in that wild, chaotic maw. And I've often talked about how I depend on every one of you to see. I would not be able to see if suddenly David got up and stuck his finger in my eye. You know, I depend on him to not do that in order to see. I depend on other drivers to follow the rules when I'm crossing the street. Anything could offset what we think should be. So everything is bound by time, everything is interdependent, and every single thing is born from and dies to emptiness. If we don't want to call it emptiness, we could call it God. We could call it spirit. We could call it the void. It's just we come from nothing and we die back. Just like our thoughts arise and cease. After all, thoughts are things also. So creating a relationship with things that recognizes those realities, that all things are temporary, all things are interdependent, and all things have God at their essence. Recognizing that helps take us out of the burning house, helps keep us from arguing in that burning house. So everything is relational. Every single thing is relational. 
and in any type of authentic spiritual practice, whatever its flavor. We're always looking to find an ultimate relationship to things and an ultimate relationship with time. Another way we could say this is having an ultimate relationship with mind. Having an ultimate relationship with time. This ultimate relationship with time and mind is really consistent with any wisdom tradition at its core. So if we're going to look at an ultimate relationship with mind, it's going to be that space between our thoughts that's going to be able to inform us in ways that allow us to continually give an appropriate response to whatever arises in our life, in our mind, in our situation, in our circumstance. That space between our thoughts, if we can consciously come from there, we are extending our intimacy with the world in ways that can't help but be helpful. We are non-harmful, not only to ourselves, but to others. We are an enhancer of awakening. We are an enhancer of all that is good, true, and beautiful in the world. And it's available to us all the time. That space between our thoughts is just like the apex of each breath. It's a brief moment of stillness there. At the bottom, in the trough of each breath, there's that brief moment of stillness. It's always there. Okay? There's always silence between words. In fact, stillness is silence, is spirit. And so when we practice this stillness, we are practicing recognizing that spirit is not separate from us. It is actually what informs us, that we are actually reflections of all that is good, true, and beautiful, all that is holy, all that is sacred, all that is open, all that is loving. Now, of course, there's a lot that can get in the way of that. And the stuff that gets in the way of that <coughs> is precisely the stuff that is on the other side of this silence that we can recognize, the other side of this still open mind. It's what sandwiches that openness, the thought. It's not that thoughts are wrong. In fact, I know factually that everyone in this room right now has a gifted mind. <laughs> really powerful intellects have a very hard time with this. Very successful people have a very hard time with this. Because after all, my mind is what's gotten me through everything. I once read a book that told me that. 
there are entire schools of philosophy that articulate that beautifully. Are you, are you trying to uh, say that your philosophy, Michael, is somehow, but no, I'm not. I'm saying those philosophies are beautiful. They got you here. The entire universe conspired to get you here now. And I would say that I have nothing to offer you. I have precisely nothing to offer you. Hopefully that's enough. In other words, no spiritual teacher, no matter what color their robe is, can show you what you already know to be true at your deepest essence. This is what attracted me to Zen. Um, of course, there are others that, that do this equally well, but that it was so non-threatening. It was all on me. It was all on me. I had to do the work. I had to walk the path. Here's the pointing point. Go this way. You go this way. You go this way. Oh, that's it? Now what do I do? Well, you just keep going this way and this way and this way. Well, now what do I do? And pretty soon, it was just now what instead of, instead of the additional now what do I do? The do I do kind of starts to fade away. It's just now what? It's just this effortless grace. It's this effortless dance that we begin to kind of relax into if we pay close enough attention to that space between our thoughts. Similarly, we deal with time. The space between our thoughts is not mind. It's no mind, as we call it in Zen at least, no mind orienting ourselves from there allows for appropriate response and you can't be there without also simultaneously developing an entirely new relationship to time and that relationship to time stems from this very simple elemental axiom <laughs> which is it is only ever right now. That's all there is. All there is, is right now. In fact, anything that is a memory or anything that is a plan is still happening right now. Any historical reference is still being expressed right now. It's not that the past doesn't exist, but that our mind gives it charge. Our mind gives our past inertia, especially if we have led a life filled with pain. If we've led a life filled with pain, we are carrying that past into the now and letting it defile it. It's not that you deny it, but it's that you look at it with authenticity with intimacy and care and recognize that it is fully within your power to let go of it. Similarly, if we live 
predicating an existence on what hasn't happened yet. We carry worry into this present moment. We carry stress into this present moment with us. And this stress defiles the present moment, which is all there is. Living from the present moment, living from this now, living from right here all the time does not, however, get in our way of creating, of co-creating, of interdependently apprehending and generating a future. Living in the here and now does not lay waste to or deny or try to get rid of what has happened in our past. But if we live here and now and we orient our living from that space between thought where we are no longer identified with our thoughts, where we are no longer identified with our future or with our past or with our judgments. We live freedom. We live liberation. We live tenderness. We live resolute fire. We live as resolute fire. It's not about being mushy. This practice is not about being mushy. Everything's okay. Well, ultimately, yeah, everything is perfect. But that doesn't mean that a practitioner gets pushed around. It means they resolutely meet whatever comes at them with full awareness recognizing in every single moment the house is on fire. And when the house is on fire, we shouldn't argue with each other or anyone else. Most importantly, we shouldn't argue with ourselves. There's not enough time Michael, you spoke at the beginning, if I recall collect correctly, about our being here and perhaps thinking we were here because of our mind. Um, and I'm not sure that I believe that, and I don't think you be believe that, but then I'm not sure that we're here totally by not using our mind. I'm a little... Help me with the first part. That, that uh, It sounded like I said... Um, that we are not here or that we are here only because of our mind. I'm a little lost. I think lost. you said that, but I'm not sure that's what you meant. Oh, okay. Because, you know, something about our intellect, mm -hmm. you know, and how difficult it is for successful people. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's incredibly difficult uh, for successful people, <clears throat> not only because of their brilliance, perhaps, but because their brilliance at getting what they want if they get what they want all the time, what it does is it reifies 
the strength of I'm in here and you're out there. In other words, I am successful. Watch me. Watch me. And if so, you're if you're successful, if your success is materialistic, or if your success is intellectual, or if your success is failure, if you get what you want, by this definition, you're successful, right? All right. But if there's a you that's going after, that you is exactly the thing that is imprisoning itself by relating to its activity in such a way that traps it. It, it cannot get, it's, that's, it, it defines ego. Okay? Now where I was really trying to kind of steer us, and then maybe I did it unsuccessfully, but if we are really super duper successful at anything, there is a tendency for us to believe that what allowed for that success to occur was something that is only partially true. In other words, uh, a child might believe that if you, if you give the kid a buck and it goes up to the ice cream truck and it gets an ice cream, the kid may believe errantly that it's very successful at getting ice cream when in fact it took a lot to get the kid there all right so really what this is about is creating a deeper wholeness to our experience that is not just about our egoic goal setting which is great it's good to do but it's also about releasing the goal once it's set keeping our is wide open and our hearts wide open as we pursue. And what that does is it fleshes out the entire experience. It's not just about us being successful. It's not just about us always being able to get what we want. It's about us radically accepting what is right here, right now, and acting from that place of radical surrendered acceptance. And in that process, Pat, that's when we touch lives. That's when we really make a difference. Really, really make a difference. Um, stillness and that moment of silence is quite a wonderful thing. And lately, I mean, what's happened now in my practice is the same incessant thoughts which I originally could say planning, um, memories, etc. But now they, I think, why this blathering? It just, <laughs> I mean, almost the stiller the moment, the faster the blathering. And I know you've explained why this is before, but there are two things. One, why does that keep persisting? And why now is it making me angry? It's, uh, first of all, it's such a great question. I, I just love that question. And I, uh, because, well, okay, so I'll, I'll give you the short answer and then I'll, then I'll try to flesh it out a little bit. The short answer is ego is hell-bent on its own survival. Okay? So what you're articulating is, remember, we have the, uh, uh, the three stages, basically, of any spiritual practice, if you go into it deeply enough, the first stage is you recognize, it's recognition, it's like, 
oh yeah, okay, this, this works, this kind of fits, this makes me feel comfortable, yeah, I like this, okay? That's the first stage. Uh, usually involves a lot of purchasing of books, <laughs> you know? Going, going to a lot of retreats, you know? Ooh, cool, mala beads, you know? You know, I think I will shave my head, or whatever it is. <laughs> That's stage one, right? And stage two, then, is resistance. And that is where ego, in the first stage, was having a ball. You know? It even created this identity around spirituality, right? I'm a seeker. Yeah? And... <laughs> Once it gets into it enough, recognition gives way to resistance, stage two. And resistance shows up as uh, anything from the blather becomes more and more intense to the blather becomes more and more intense, but there are those brief glimpses where the fire enters in and then the ego closes it it's still burning inside so it gets pissed off right and it can then go from that to who is doing this to me my teacher evil my sangha bunch of blowhards my you know i mean you can go right down the list you can become an enemy with the work that is actually freeing you from that entire impulse so in stage two, stage two resistance, in other words, is all about the fight. It's the last stand of our separate self-sense fighting back what's real and what's all real. <laughs> and that gives way to stage three, which is then release or renunciation. Okay? And the renunciation happens only when you patiently sit through the blather and watch it and patiently watch the rage and patiently watch the hurt and patiently watch the bliss. Patiently watching, becoming this watcher, being the seer. That's when we start to really relax into something that has an endless supply of fuel. It doesn't, it doesn't need to stop because it's not rolling. It's, it's, it's the road, the wheel, the vehicle, the sky, the water, everything all at once. And that, getting to that place, takes little more than uh, fearlessness, than uh, dedication, than uh, uh, commitment to recognizing the temporary nature of the self to recognizing your own death and the death of everything you ever had or wanted or identified with it's about as fun as lighting yourself on fire in some cases you know but if you have a teaching and you have a sangha and you're able to really have a teacher which can take myriad forms and bring it in then it all kind of starts to coalesce all the dust we just kind of start dusting the lampshade what's what starts showing the radiant clarity of emptiness like we talked about last week 
So it's just, it's just mind. Thank <laughs> you.